Welcome to the Simple Faith Podcast, where we are exploring authentic Christianity for normal people. My name is Dave Betts, and if you're new here, we're doing our very best to delve into the deep things of our faith while stripping away all of those unnecessarily churchy and intellectual words that muddy the waters and can often be a bit daunting to people who just want to know more about Jesus and his church. I'm really excited about today's episode as we delve into the first 500 years or so of the church. But first, I'd love to share something that God did in my life and my wife's life this week. Uh, It's pretty exciting. On Sunday, we went to meet at church at downtown Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. And it's it's kind of a rough neighborhood, if I'm honest. And I think I'd made a a pretty dumb mistake. I'd, I'd forgotten to lock the car door. We think that's what happened anyway. Well, during the service, someone must have come up to our car and rummaged through and taken Shreya's purse. We didn't know that her purse was in the car. It turns out it was. And it took two days, but we eventually realized that someone was spending hundreds of dollars on our cards. We'd lost Shreya's Apple AirPods, her headphones. We'd lost uh, birth certificates and driver's licenses and, well, just a whole ton of stuff. And we felt really convicted about the need to pray for this guy or girl, whoever whoever felt the need to steal the stuff. And so we, we posted something on social media and just said, hey, if you get a moment, would you pray? And I was overwhelmed, actually. I think we were both overwhelmed by how many people messaged us to say, yeah, we're really praying into this. Uh, there are even prayer meetings at former churches of ours, which we were so grateful for, that, that prayed for an outcome where the person that stole from us would have a radical encounter with the love of Jesus. Anyway, the next day comes and uh, I was presenting a healing seminar at our church. If you've been listening to this podcast for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been talking about divine healing. Well, I was presenting a uh, basically the contents of that podcast episode to our church. And it's about nine o'clock on a Wednesday night. Uh, we've just finished and a homeless guy comes through the door. Now that's quite normal for us where we meet for church. And so normally one of the other elders would go in and chat with whoever comes through the door. But today it fell to me, this day it fell to me. And I kind of walked into the, uh, into the foyer area and, and spoke to this guy. I said, Hey, are you okay? And he said, Oh, I need, I need to confess. I need to confess. I, I, I've sinned. I need to confess. And I said to him, well, you know, we don't have like a confessional booth or anything. That's not how we do things here, but uh, what's up? And he said, well, I helped someone steal a purse the other day. Um, in a car just out here. And I just feel so bad. I need to come and uh, apologize. I need to come and ask for forgiveness from God because I don't normally do that kind of thing. And I said, hey, well, you know that, I think that was my wife's purse that you stole. Uh, and he said, oh, uh, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Where is, where is it? Where is the purse? And he said, well, the guy who stole it, uh, you know, the guy who led the way really was, is just down the road. I can take you to him, but he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. I said, well, don't worry about that. But can you just give me the documents? I'd love to have Sharia's driver's license and uh, and birth certificate and all that stuff again. That'd be really nice. And he said, "Well, I don't think we have it. We we dumped the bag. We dumped it. We dumped it." And um, so he took me with uh, my my big friend Ivan, uh, an Eastern European guy called Ivan, who is my protector. <laughs> he's a he's much more scary than I am. And so we walked into this dark alley to this bin, and he showed me where he had uh, uh, where they dumped the the purse and. Unfortunately, it wasn't there. The bins had been emptied. And he said, he said, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm an addict. We were, we were desperate. I just feel so bad. I'm so sorry we did this. And he said, I want to get right with God. I want to get right with God. I don't want to live this way anymore. And, and so next to this 
blue bin in a dark alley in the deepest, darkest part of downtown Red Deer, I got to pray with this guy that he would be freed from his addiction, that he would get to know Jesus, that he would put his trust in Jesus. And it was an amazing answer to prayer. What what an amazing God that we serve, that God answers prayer in such an amazing way. What a, a testimony of who God is and how great God is that he answers our prayers in such a way. Anyway, and enough about that. I just, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. It was a huge encouragement to me this week. Let's jump into the, the history of the church. You know, God is, isn't just here today. He's been around since uh, the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He was around way before that. And that's something that is so encouraging to us. You know, right now we're taking a few episodes to look at the history of the church. And last week we did a run through the entire, the entirety of the church in, in 20 minutes, which was quite a, a full effort. <laughs> this week, we're going to focus on a bit more of a specific time period. And if you uh, are a super history nerd, you're going to love this. But if you're not interested at all, let me try and present a case for why this matters. You know, I read somewhere online that the average church size is about 80 people and that there are estimated to be around ooh, 2.18 billion or so Christians in the world, which would mean, if my maths is correct, that there are over 27 million churches right now as we speak around the world. And yet it all started with an empty tomb outside the walls of Jerusalem. It began with the resurrected Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty insane that the church would flourish and grow in such an incredible way from this one moment. That's, that's incredible. So now the reason we did a quick overview last week was to understand a broad view of how things fit together in much the same way as we did with our Bible overview episodes right at the beginning of this podcast. And this week, like I said, we're going to focus solely on the first 500 years or so of the church. You know, during this time, temples are destroyed, persecution is rife, the Bible is completed, the first pope appears, and even an emperor gets saved. So there is a lot going on. Now, before we jump in, I just want to recommend a book to you. Uh, I couldn't recommend this book more highly. It's called Church History in Plain Language. I like the sound of that. Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. I warn you, it's a big and daunting book, but the author does such a good job of showing just how exciting and crazy church history is. I've read it, I think, four times now, possibly more, and it just it doesn't get old. It's a really, really good book. And pretty much everything you're going to hear in the course of these episodes is based on Bruce Shelley's work with a little bit of extra stuff added in. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at the first 500 years of the church. The region where Jesus lived and ministered was a really interesting one. It was this crossroads of cultures and people. And in fact, if you're not familiar with the geography of the Middle East region, it's, it's actually really worth opening up Google Maps on the satellite mode and taking a look at Israel when you get a chance. You'd see a few really important details. Firstly, you'd see that you have to pass through Israel if you want to get from Africa to the Middle East or north up into Europe or vice versa. Secondly, you might notice that Israel is noticeably more green than the land to the east. All of that land is desert and 
as you can probably guess, the desert was a place you didn't really want to be if you could avoid it. There's a whole host of details like this, but the main thing to know is that Israel was a key strategic location. This is why you had so many civilizations trying to conquer it. Over the course of centuries, this made this region really diverse, all of these different nations trying to conquer this one area. I don't think it's a coincidence that God placed his people there. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus came and ministered in such a pivotal location at a time when, despite this huge diversity of culture, Rome had actually conquered most of the known world and there was a common language in Greek. It was the perfect location for the church to begin. So as we see in the book of Acts, seven weeks after Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension, 120 disciples met in a room where God's spirit suddenly fell upon them. As we talked about last week, you might remember that. And a crowd began to gather as people were speaking in all sorts of different tongues. And Peter preached, eventually calling on the people to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And amazingly, around 3,000 people were saved that day. We see the church exploding into life. And then from here, a man called Luke documents what happens in the book of Acts. And I think this is really key. Sometimes we forget that the book of Acts is a history book as well as a book of the Bible. And we want to skip past it to what happens next. But besides Jesus's ascension and the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers, there are actually some really vital details that are documented in the book of Acts. Firstly, in Acts 7, we see a man called Stephen who becomes the first Christian martyr. Unfortunately, there would be many, many more to follow. In fact, if you have ever heard of a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a whole book dedicated to some of the martyrs of the Christian faith. In Acts 9, a man called Saul, who fiercely persecuted the Christians, was radically saved. He became Paul, who, uh, divinely inspired by God, would go on to write this huge chunk of the New Testament. He was a a pretty special and strategic evangelist at the time as uh, he was extremely well-educated in Hebrew culture. He had this really thorough understanding of Greek culture and philosophy, and he was also a Roman citizen, which meant that he was free to travel around the Roman world. Very few people had all of those uh, privileges or uh, understandings. And finally, we see the journeys of the apostles as they established churches in places like Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi, in Galatia, in Rome, in Thessaloniki, in Antioch, in Colossae. And we follow three of Paul's missionary journeys. Of course, there's a whole lot more than that going on in the book of Acts, but that's just a, a taster. You know, as we can see, the, the book of Acts is really important. We, we think it covers roughly 30 years of the early church after Jesus ascends to heaven. And we know this because tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome, dying kind of like Stephen as a martyr for his faith. There was this uh, great fire in Rome around 64 AD and Nero, who was the emperor at the time, conducted all sorts of uh, executions as he persecuted Christians at this time. And possibly uh, Paul's beheading was part of these executions in 64 AD. So that's where we're at now, 64 AD. Around the same time in Jerusalem, there's tensions between the Jews and their Roman overlords. And those tensions are mounting. In 66 AD, the Jews have finally had enough and they revolt against the Romans. And while while the Jews hold out for like four years against the Romans, they eventually succumb to the empire's power. The temple was burned and every synagogue in the region was eventually burned to the ground. It was a really bad time, a really bad season for the Jews and for Christians. And lots of Jews died and Christians scattered 
throughout the known world and the center of the church moved away from Jerusalem towards Rome. Some scholars even suggest actually that uh, within less than 200 years, there were over 30,000 Christians in the city of Rome. And considering the persecution of people like the Emperor Nero and people like that, this is just astounding. We know that most of these Christians were from poorer classes, uh, from poorer backgrounds. And the reason we know this is because they spoke Greek, which was the language of slaves and poor men at the time. The richer classes literally spoke a different language. They spoke Latin instead. So that takes us to the second century where Christianity is growing rapidly. And there's also more and more critics of the faith. People would look at Christians and they would hear about their communion practice and accuse them of cannibalism, which kind of makes sense if you're claiming that you're eating the body and drinking the blood of someone else. You know, so these people from the outside looking in were like, whoa, these people are weird. They're eating the body and they're drinking the blood of someone else. They didn't understand the, the symbolism. And let's be honest, symbolically, that is what Christians are doing. So you can understand some of the concern there. And there was also a lot of skepticism because Christians would have lived very different to others in the world at the time. For example, they would have rejected the pagan gods that were worshipped at the time and they would have refused to call Caesar Lord. Uh, Not to mention a whole host of other issues which made people pretty uncomfortable with Christians at the time. And essentially, because of these issues, uh, several Christian writers had to rise up and to defend the faith against these rumors and um, against incorrect thinking towards Christianity. Basically, they were doing what Peter had called them to do, to be prepared to give a reason for the faith that they had. And so we call these men apologists. And this is where the subject of apologetics began to gain prominence. If you're unfamiliar with that word, if you've never come across the word apologetics, uh, we recorded an episode in October 2020 talking all about it. So uh, do check it out if you get the chance. Uh, Hopefully it will be helpful to you. Now, there are lots of important names around this time, people like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and people like that. I don't want to skip past them, but I want to be cautious not to throw out too many names as, let's be real, unless you have a borderline photographic memory like my friend Simon, it's pretty hard to keep up with all of these names. So by this time, there were not only lots of attacks on Christianity from the outside, but there were also lots of really dangerous attacks from the inside, lots of unhealthy, unbiblical teaching was beginning to arise. And here's the thing, the Bible just wasn't as widely available as it is now. And you imagine, even now, when the Bible is widely available, there's lots of false teaching. So imagine when the Bible wasn't around for everyone. You couldn't read your Bible at night before bed or every morning before breakfast. You couldn't do a devotional together in the same way as you can today. In fact, the only time you could hear the Bible's teaching, if you were lucky, was in your church setting. Because of that, there was lots of skewed or outright false teaching that was beginning to arise. And it was really for this reason that the old Roman creed or the later version that we know as the Apostles' Creed appeared for the first time in Rome during the second century. Actually, later in 325 AD, we'd get something called the Nicene Creed, uh, which is from the Council of Nicaea. You might be familiar with uh, a really famous Hillsong song called This I Believe, which is pretty loosely based on those creeds. And it really helped shape the theology of the church and, 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 or at least proclaim the theology of the church and attempt to avoid any false teaching or what we sometimes refer to as heresy. So by this point, the church has spread like wildfire. Apologists are rising to defend the faith and theologians are taking a stand for biblical truth. The problem is there was still a lot of work to do. Like, for example, where did the Bible come from? How did the church continue to grow? How did they deal with persecution? 
Well, someone called Muratori discovered a document from about 190 AD that lists the following books of the New Testament. Listen to this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Romans, Philemon, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Jude, 1st and 2nd John, Revelation, and then also the Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon. This sounds very similar to the New Testament that we have today. It's not the same. It's what we now know as the Muraturian Canon. It was it, what it tells us is basically that very, very early on, as early as 190 AD, the churches had accepted what is basically the New Testament that we know today being placed alongside the Old Testament in, in Christian circles. Now, as you can probably guess, the list didn't remain the same as the Muraturian Canon. You can just look at your Bible and see that. There are lots of debates over uh, the course of a couple of hundred years over which books did belong in the New Testament and which books didn't. And there's lots of tests for that. We've talked about that in other episodes. Uh, For example, you might have noticed that our New Testament today doesn't have the Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon in it. Actually, by Easter 367, a bishop called Athanasius from the city of Alexandria sent a letter with the current New Testament list that we're familiar with in it. In 393 at Hippo in North Africa and in 397 in Carthage, the same lists were published and the Bible as we know it was more or less formed. Let's jump back to around 300 AD to another really key figure in the church, Emperor Constantine. Shortly before Constantine became the emperor in around 312 AD, the church was growing, but still very much the persecuted minority in religion of the poor. In fact, one of the most vicious persecutions of Christians was ordered by Constantine's predecessor, Diocletian. Now, Diocletian died and then Galerius, his His uh, successor died, creating a bit of a power struggle. And this is what Bruce Shelley, who wrote that book, Church History in Plain Language, has to say about it. In the spring of 312, Constantine advanced across the Alps to dislodge his rival Maxentius from Italy and to capture Rome. It was a, a daring gamble. And when he came upon his militarily superior enemy at the Milvian Bridge, just outside the walls of Rome, he found help in the God of the Christians. In a dream, he saw a cross in the sky and the words, in this sign conquer. This convinced him to advance and when on October 28th, 312, he achieved his brilliant victory over the troops of Maxentius, Constantine looked upon his success as proof of the power of Christ and the superiority of the Christian religion. Amazingly, the most important person in the Roman Empire had a radical encounter with God. And that's a very helpful thing in terms of the spread of a faith. The Christian faith went from persecution to prominence in really just a few years. And it drastically changed the trajectory of the church as we knew it. In fact, by 380 AD, there were even penalties for people who weren't Christians. It it was quite a turnaround. But before that, in 330 AD, uh, this is something to note, Constantine moved the capital city of the Roman Empire from Rome to a place called Byzantium, which we know today as Istanbul in Turkey. And not content with the uh, original name and probably in a slightly less than humble move, Constantine renames the city Constantinople. So the Roman enemies were in the east. Their official religion came from the east and now the capital had moved eastward as well. This is something very important to tuck away for later. By the end of the 4th century, 
we see the rise to prominence of one of the greatest philosophers of all time, a man called Augustine of Hippo. Like Constantine, he was saved in quite a profound way and his subsequent work has been really influential on the church today. Uh, He taught on a whole range of subjects, but one of the things he's most famous for is his study of sin, particularly before the fall of Adam and Eve. So he he really put a lot of time and energy into this uh, concept of sin and trying to understand how sin worked based on what the Bible taught. And around the same time, there was this British monk called Pelagius who was denying that sin was inherited from Adam and Eve. If you're hearing this and you might think, well, why is that such a big deal? There's actually a few reasons why that's a really huge deal. Firstly, it's not what the Bible teaches. You just have to check out Romans 5. You can read the whole of Romans 5, for example, which talks about how we've inherited sin through Adam. And in Romans 3.23, it says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But secondly, if humans didn't inherit sinful natures from the outset, it would mean that in theory, they could live lives totally free from sin which means that humans could theoretically enter heaven without the need for Jesus. Now, that's a surprisingly big deal that encourages human works. It it encourages us to work for our salvation instead of depending on the grace of God. And ultimately, it's false teaching or, or heresy. And Augustine fought Pelagius aggressively as he really wanted people to understand that it was by grace, by the grace of God that we had been saved. And this is just one area of Augustine's influence. But like I said, he, he taught on a whole range of subjects and topics. He was pretty profound, but he wasn't perfect also. We want, we want to mention that his teaching, for example, on how to interpret parables, Jesus's parables, is kind of widely regarded as being a bit sketchy today. But with that in mind, we still can't help but be grateful for how he shaped the church. You know, of course, like last week, we are never, ever going to be able to cover everything that happened in a short podcast episode. But there are a few more things that are worth remembering. Firstly, this is a period of councils. So there were a number of councils that were held, which called key people together to discuss really important theological issues. For example, there was the Council of Nicaea, which we mentioned earlier. And also, uh, by the way, that was called together by Constantine to discuss Uh, huge issues like the Trinity. And then there was the council at Chalcedon in 451 AD, which discussed the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, which is something that we often take for granted today. There are lots of other councils as well, but uh, it's hard to remember all of those in one go. So I'm just going to say it was a period of councils. Secondly, it's during this period that the city of Rome begins to fall. In 410 AD, led by Alaric, the leader of the Visigoths, an army plunders Rome, destroying almost everything except the churches, because Alaric claimed to be a Christian. By 452 AD, Attila the Hun crosses the Alps to advance on Rome. But before he gets there, Leo, the bishop of Rome at the time, rushes out to meet him and begs him to spare the city. Attila agrees, and according to Bruce Shelley, probably wouldn't have attacked anyway because... They were experiencing a whole bunch of famines and epidemics. But crucially, this was a time where the Bishop of Rome began to assume real importance. There are lots of other important bishops, by the way, mainly based on location. Uh, There was bishops in Rome and Alexandria and Antioch and Constantinople and Jerusalem. But really, it was Constantinople and Rome that were the big dogs because that's where the empire's power lay. And tensions were beginning to mount over who was the Alpha Bishop. You know, actually, funnily enough, the year before Attila the Hun advances on Rome and Leo goes out to meet him, at the Council of Chalcedon, which we just mentioned, this council gave the Bishop of Constantinople 
equal authority to the Bishop of Rome, which meant you had one head of the church in the western side of the world, and then you had one head of the church in the eastern side of the world, which you just know is going to go really, really well, don't you? There's not going to be any issues with that whatsoever. In fact, one more detail about that. Rome was invaded again in 455 AD by the Vandals, and uh, and this time Leo begged for mercy, which he was granted. And afterwards, he assumed an old title. This title was Pontifex Maximus, which meant that he was the high priest of religion throughout the entire empire. You might know this title by another name, Pope. So we had the first Pope in Pope Leo. So where does that leave us at the end of the first 500 years or so? Well, the church exploded under the influence of the Holy Spirit, despite a whole bunch of persecution. The Bible was definitively set. The apologists, the philosophers and theologians rose to defend and understand the Christian faith through writings and councils. And an emperor called Constantine is radically saved and the church becomes the religion of the Romans. And as bishops vie for power, the first pope is declared and the church is becoming incredibly powerful, as we'll see in the next episode. The Roman Empire is beginning to fall and what we would one day know as Europe is beginning to rise. And I recognize this is a lot of stuff, which is one of the reasons I'm trying to keep this episode as short as possible. But it's all foundational to the history of the church as we know it today. As always, I I really hope that you found this informative and helpful. And really, our sole purpose with this podcast is to try and provide information in a way that is as easy as possible to understand. Although we totally get that with something as huge as church history and with all these names and places, it can be really hard to get that balance right. So if you have any questions, please uh, do get in touch with us. You can email us at simplefaithpodcast at gmail.com. That's simplefaithpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via social media or message us individually. It genuinely makes our day when we get to hear from you. So that's it from us for this week. Almost 500 years of church history covered. Join us next week as we look at the next crucial period in the history of the church. Bye.